Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Into. It. Make it so. Right now, though, you're on Bite Into It. Tonight on the mics, we have Dan Salmon. How are you doing, Dan? I'm well. How are you? I'm okay. Excellent. And Vanessa Tahoka, how are you? Hey, really well. Good to see you. How are you? Yeah, doing all right. And I'm Lily Ryan. Um, and we have a pretty great show coming up tonight, if I do say so myself. Mm-hmm. Um, tonight, we are heading into space with Rowan Ford and Sam Pigeons from Swinburne University's Makers and Creators Club, who are partnering with a Canberra-based organization to send students hardware into orbit, which is very cool. Later on, we're also going to be t- talking about uh, usernames and picture frames after some research that was released by Snapchat into the naming habits of Australians who use the app and what that says about our culture. Always love it when we've got people from other countries commenting on how Australians do names. Yeah, we'll be mm. the judge of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but first, uh, let's get into the news. Um, as always, we got to get the whatever has happened at Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, latest updates out of the way <laughs> has the fire started burning a different color or is it just oh, did it expand slightly or well um what's happened this week uh, is that the everyone's favorite e-safety commissioner has um asked <laughs> the twitter executives um you know mask et al uh to Try and rein in some of the hate speech on the site because they have a massive problem with that, which has to do with, you know, not really having a stable content and safety team for some reason, um, being that, you know, they fired everyone. Um, yeah, so... So, so d- d- does the e-safety commissioner, who, whose name is Julian Mangrand... That's um, right. Does she think that she's going to get anywhere with this particular threat to um, Twitter? Well... She's threatened to fine uh, Twitter $700,000 per day for each day that they don't take any action on hate speech on the platform, mm-hmm. apparently. Is right. this an end of financial year cash grab? You know, this is how we'll fill the coffers for the next year? I mean, it, it could be. I... I mean, the budget is budget's looking healthy. Who knew? 
It's an interesting question, though, of uh, you know how they're going to do that, given that Australia doesn't have any Twitter offices mm. anymore. They no. closed those down after Musk took over late last year. Right. And so I'm not entirely certain how that will work. And and how are they defining hate speech? Have they have they gone to that kind of detail? Is it is it only hate speech in the eye of the beholder, or are they just saying large? sweeping statements, we're going to add, chuck a policy out there and then we'll work out the detail later. I haven't read too deeply into it. but ah, um, I heard that we'll be relying on Australia's uh, defamation and racial discrimination laws uh, to you know, lean oh. on our, our definitions because normally what happens with these platforms is they're held to the standards in the country that they're publishing in mm-hmm. and you know, that's how you go after them. Of course, it's very hard to enforce these sort of fines, but it's more the spirit of the thing. That yeah, the, the, the vibe. If you will, yes, yeah. Yes. See, it's going to be. It'll be interesting to see how how that stacks up because if they're going to be, you know, um, issuing fines based on things that take years to resolve in court. Well, traditionally, you know, they've been very um, observant of uh, the German rules mm. around. Um, Hitler and the Nazis and hate speech related to all of that, which is prosecuted mm. very heavily in Germany. Mm-hmm. And all of the different social media platforms have, have tried to be very compliant in that space, as you would. But I think, you know, things have obviously drifted. Yeah, and it does seem like there are, you know, rising reports in Australia of Twitter being used as a platform for disseminating hate speech in a lot of different ways against many different groups. So, you know, it's not... It's not an invalid complaint. It's just mm-hmm. uh, I'm not entirely sure how it's going to be enforced. But, yeah, Twitter is um, very, very much on fire. So that's the flavour of the fire for this week. Mm, yeah, and it, it smells like hate speech. Mm. Who knew? Thanks for the update. <sighs> mm. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so, go on. No, I was going to say, so, uh, Lily, what's, what's this interesting uh, stuff coming out from Apple? Oh, yes. Uh, This is in the UK. So the UK is having another go around at the thing that um, lots of countries, especially Five Eyes countries, really like to do every so often if um, things aren't, things are maybe seeming a bit quiet, you know, nothing much has really been going on in the world, I guess. Mm. Um, And so they decide that they're going to try and ban encryption. This seems to be something that comes around every two or three years, like a comet. Since the 90s at the least, yeah. Yeah, like they'll be like, all right, so we've got... End-to-end encryption, everyone who uses the, you know, particular... This seems to be the cycle that I'm describing here. It's mm-hmm. like everyone enjoys the, you know, privacy that you get from using end-to-end encryption in your in your communications and everyone seems to be okay with that. And then someone in the government thinks, there must be crime happening there. Yes, or we have national security issues. We have national mm-hmm. security issues. And there will be some kind of... I'm not going to say false flag, but there, there may very well be some an, an event that happens or some kind of major bust of, you know... a very horrible crime mm-hmm. that where they are using end-to-end encryption in order to communicate mm-hmm. and then that will be used as a catalyst to try and bring it down. And then the next steps are all of the human rights advocates uh, step in and try and advocate uh, the consumer rights advocates hopefully step in as well mm-hmm. and then usually by the time the banks and insurance companies step in, that's when the government tends to turn the ship around. Is yeah. that, are we yeah. describing this this pattern correctly? What do you yeah, reckon? Yeah, it's like what you've seen this film before. Yeah. Yeah. So we are now at the stage where in the UK, Apple has gone to the BBC and said, um, we need to amend this bill that you're trying to put through for online safety in order to improve and protect encryption standards because uh, you, if you want to weaken encryption in order to try and catch criminals using it to mask bad things and crimes... Um, you are going to weaken it for everybody, including everybody who's doing, you know, bank transactions, etc. Mm. Um, there's really like it's it's not it's like an on or off switch. You can't have both. There's no other way to do this, and this has been the perpetual argument, really. So 
that's what's happened is we've now got big players like Apple in the media in the UK in this round of the fight saying, hey, um, encryption is how the internet actually manages to function in any sense. And I am wondering, will consumers' memories start to get longer on these issues? Uh, I'm thinking about all of the recent uh, medical uh, data breaches in Australia mm-hmm. and it really, you know, it started coming up in barbecue type conversations with, you know, acquaintances and what have you much more often, I think, than it, than it had in a while. So I thought, oh, maybe this is a point where this will start to really stick in people's consciousness. Mm. I don't know about that with relation to encryption though. That one is an interesting one. Well, I, I, I think that if you, if you think, if you look at Broadly, the 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 idea of security, cybersecurity, where people who have had data stolen in a hack might actually be a bit more generally vigilant about the idea of online security more generally, and might hopefully be a bit more vocal in, you know, yeah. when when these when these kind of threats come down, they can be snuffed out more quickly than requiring you know apple or facebook or the banks to say hey hold on we need we we need to like it it shouldn't have to get to that level the problem has always been that the discussion and the debate around encryption itself gets quite technical very quickly and while we do have a lot of discourse about data breaches at the moment um there are pretty straightforward analogies to leaving files on the street and things like that encryption isn't really like that you got a lot of people who will and it's probably happening in the uk already come out and talk about the difference between an envelope and the thing inside the envelope and different yes, kinds yes. of codes and but um the way that encryption relates to data breaches is not a straight line no but i guess uh, when i think of the general public discourse it's not of experts it's not of people who understand this mm. it's it's more about is there a general sense of public will where if if you know organizations are seen to be weakening something that's around the security of data you know whether they understand it or not you know will there be more backlash, will there be, you know, faster response to to that? Yeah, well, the big argument on the other side there is, of course, that um, the types of crimes that are being emphasised as, you know, needing this breaking to occur are, you know, increasingly heinous. You've got terrorism, you've got CSAM, you've got all of that really nasty stuff Mm -hmm. that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it can be quite hard to push back against that. Um, But when you are talking about, hey, look, this is is an on-off switch, uh, yeah, the argument, it just it goes around. Yes. I look forward to having this conversation again in six months. All right. Well, good <laughs> luck to you in the UK. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and on the topic of, you know, checking in on our favourite things, um, there's been some, some fun going on at Reddit. In the other cesspit yes. of the internet. <laughs> oh, it's also glorious. You know, it's, it's the same as the encryption market, really, isn't it? It's just like it's, it can be a feast, it can be a famine. Mm. So what's happening over at Reddit land? What isn't? Um, so we have covered off a few things over the last few weeks. Uh, listeners will remember that Reddit um, decided that they were going to charge a lot more money for programmers to access their API, their application programming interface, and build apps around Reddit. Um, very, very large amount of money, which meant that most third-party Reddit apps were going to go out of business very quickly because it was not affordable. Lots of Reddits and subreddits um, decided to go private or go dark in protest against this. Reddit uh, pushed back and, and asked the moderators not to and threatened some of the moderators in some cases, it was alleged. And yeah, it said we could replace you if we want to. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't um, very subtle. And since then, we've had lots of really interesting things like subreddits pushing back, like our picks saying, okay, fine, we're just going to post pictures of John Oliver from now on, and that's all. Um, but lots of really interesting conversations about 
the to- what Reddit is to the internet now and how it is a resource for a lot of knowledge. It's been sort of commonly discussed that for the last few years to get anything useful out of a Google search, you really have to use Google to search Reddit because that's where you get actual examples of human beings actually talking to each other. With Commentary, editorial, you know, yeah, pushing yeah. the good content to the top ahead of sponsored results. Yes, and this is also the thing that Reddit is seeking to monetize. They're saying, well, we are sitting on this trove of natural language data with people talking to each other honestly so why wouldn't we and reddit is going back and saying oh right okay we're the product are we that's very interesting we could go elsewhere um and now they're moving to the fediverse um as happened with twitter as well so there's a lot of that going on but what's been really interesting out of this has been the effect that it has had on google search where when people use google search um they are now really noticing it is terrible with all of the subreddits that have been providing this information being set to private so they're no longer able to be searched via google and the quality of search results dramatically decreasing um, as a result of that. It's been discussed apparently internally at Google. There were reports that this had happened. And that has been something that has certainly, I think, highlighted firstly how valuable Reddit is. Secondly, the quality of Google search having taken its own nosedive. And I love the the lens on the pressure on Google at the moment, which is, you know, here they are, uh, Sundar Pichai is saying that users don't want blue links as much as they want comprehensive answers, mm. which is what Reddit's good at. But also that, you know, the unspoken bit there is the large language model generative AI piece that's being swept up where there's potential to get questions answered without having lists of blue links that people have to scan through and check the, the credibility of. Of course, they should check the credibility of whatever's coming up in those yes. those chats. But yes, it's interesting moment for Google. It is. It is. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Right now in the studio with us, we have Sam Pinches and Ron Ford from Swinburne University's Makers and Creators Club, who are here to talk about their very literal and very exciting product launch um, with the satellite payload card that was created by the students at Swinburne and launched on the SpaceX transporter on June the 13th. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, You've brought this in for us, actually. It's it's a pretty amazing little payload. Um, is this this is a model here? It's got um, a Raspberry Pi on. Is this a replica of the thing that has gone on the payload that's that's gone into space? That's correct. Um, more than just a replica, this particular one we brought with us when we were looking to install it into the satellite. So we have a m- number of backups in case we end up with any hardware issues. This is one of these backups. Oh, that's amazing. So, so how? Oh, sorry. No, no, For no. listeners, I just want to say we've, we're looking at a like a ten by ten little green chip. Uh, not only has it got the Raspberry Pi in it, there's a bunch of I don't know things soldered onto it, and then there's a, a, a sort of readable edge where it would slot into to something else. I, I forget all the technical names of these things. My my electrical engineer father is cringing at the moment, but um, but yeah, just an idea of what we're looking at, and it's it's pretty succinct. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and there are quite a few things going on with this. Can you tell us more about what, what it's designed to do and what the Swinburne University students are hoping to do with it now that uh, it's in orbit? Getting it to orbit is a significant challenge, and that's its primary objective. So now we've got it to orbit, now we've just got to wait for Skycraft to bring all their systems online, and we're one of those. So what we've got on board is we've got a Raspberry Pi, which for those that may or may not have heard of that, it's a small computer chip. 
what that's doing is that's got a number of sensors uh, so we can sense the uh, movement. So we should be seeing that in zero G for once it gets to orbit. And we're taking that data and we're transmitting that back to the ground. So another of those sensors, which you may be able to see once you see a photo of this, we've got a camera on board. So what we're aiming to do with this is we're aiming to get that to take a photo, transmit that back to the ground, and it's really a demonstration of all the hard work we've got to go into it and that we can show people something solid, something solid. This was taken by our camera in orbit and it just really brings back to earth, I guess, what we're trying to do here to highlight um, the capabilities of students at Swinburne. You mentioned Skycraft just before. Can you talk a bit about who they are and uh, your relationship with them and, and how they helped you get this into space? Yeah, so, so Skycraft are a satellite company based in Canberra. Um, and they've been working on satellites to provide air traffic control services across the globe. So even though you're out of land range, you can be above the oceans. And then with the satellite, you can then still receive that air traffic communications. Um, inside their satellite, they have a number of little slots. And these slots, they offer to businesses to put their own modules in so that they can provide space services in that way too. And they offered the uh, Swimmer Makers Club one of these slots. So, um, yeah, that's that's how the story started. I think the... Uh, one of the people who worked at Skycraft, they originally were a student at Swinburne, part of this club, so it's sort of a bringing back to the club some of the goodies. Um, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. And so um, when this project came about, when this opportunity came about, how, how did the club uh, decide what was going to go on it and, and how it would be used? It was a very open option. So we had a – so it started with a night at the pub. So <laughs> As all good things <laughs> As do. As all things do. So we had our president, Zach. Uh, now, Zach had been talking to a contact at um, Skycraft, and he's got, oh, we can send this stuff to space. It wasn't until that point that I realised that that was implying electronics. It meant we had power budget, we had data budget. Prior to that, I was thinking it was arts and crafts. And <laughs> <laughs> once I realised that this meant that we could send electronics to space, I was all in. And so you've designed this, um, the, the club has designed this right from scratch, all of the, the stuff that's going on the PCB here, is that correct? That's correct. And how, um, how have you got, uh, what components did you get there and, and how have you decided which, which need to go where? Hmm. So as far as the, so for the layout, so the cam was in a very particular place because we've got a cutout on the outside of the satellite that allows us to be, that faces the ground from orbit. And so we've uh, looked to align our camera as much as possible so that we're going to get a photo of earth, ideally with a bit of sun in that photo. The rest of the components, their position is not critical. They just have to fit within the size and weight requirements. What are the size and weight requirements? Because this is what, 10 centimetres? I can't, I can't actually hmm. estimate sizes. But it's got a very particular profile. And the camera itself, um, just for listeners, is what, about a centimetre tall? It sort of sticks up a bit. So how, how did you have to fit everything within these constraints? Hmm. So we've got a very tight constraint so we've got a 15 millimeter constraint so that's that's a fairly small height difference we've got to fit everything within so that does make things a little bit challenging with mechanical with electronics we've got to make sure that it's not it's going to physically fit in the satellite then the weight budget as well because 
our weight is quite constrictive. Any resources you have on orbit, whether that be power, whether that be weight, size, cost a lot of money and take a lot of time and engineering for the satellite provider to provide that as a resource. So for those, so we want to minute solar panels are required for power, then that's got to be stored. Um, that requires batteries, that requires weight. So every resource is very precious and that's why we've looked to minimise everything. So what sort of specs did the satellite send you? You know, do you get the specs for the entire satellite? Do you only get this tiny amount about the rack that you get to put your card into? We get the specifications around, mostly around what our system in, and the interfacing requirements. So how much power we can use, uh, how, how often we can send data back. So mostly they relate to uh, our systems. Um, we do see some of the other side, but we can't really talk about that. Yeah, without going to specs, has it been perhaps a return to the dial-up era in terms of speeds and data <laughs> rather than um, oh, yes. full ADSL or NBN? But, Amazing. Yeah. And how many uh, how many prototypes did you make in order to get it to meet these requirements? I mean, we're looking at a backup right now, but I assume that a lot of iteration had to go into this in order to get it quite quite right. There was a large number of prototypes and a large number of... Uh, it was a constant process of iteration. You design something, you test something, see if it works. When it doesn't work, you fix it and try again. So the final units, we made five that we brought with us to Skycraft, but there would be at least ten revisions prior to that. How many other students have had input into this design? So we, we had input from quite a number of students, um, mostly from the software side of things, which was absolutely amazing. Prior to this, my experience was hardware, and so I did the hardware and electronics design. The software was done by a large team. Uh, Sam is one of those. And that's where most students were involved because you can ha collaboration is a lot easier with the software, mm. and that's also it's easy for me to say the hardware's the hard pit because that's what I can see from my perspective. The software is a much more complicated challenge than the hardware. Um, what what does the software do? I assume you're not are you talking about the onboard software that's running on the Pi? Um, is uh, in order to get the images back. From the satellite, I assume you have to have something to speak to it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the Raspberry Pi runs Linux. On top of that, we run some Python code that takes and processes all the images and the sensor data, packages it up into small little packages. Each of those gets passed to the main satellite's computer, and then that takes it back to Earth. From there, we can sort of reassemble this jigsaw puzzle and hopefully get a photo of a selfie of Earth if everything works. A selfie so, of Earth with the, with the sun framed just nicely behind it. That, that's the goal, yeah. 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 Got to get the right angles. It's pretty important. Yeah, we, we've skimped on filters this time, but maybe next 2.0 we might hey, go for something do it more gram-worthy. I can see you've got some, uh, you know, some engraving on the PCB here. Um, you know, some of it obviously performing a fairly utilitarian function, but you've also said, here's the name of the club, you know, Swinburne Makers and Creators. It's right up there. So now you literally have your name in space, which is very cool. Are there any other little um, Easter eggs or hidden bits and pieces that you're able to put here? Yeah, so one of them is actually not running right now, but on the front of the board there's some LEDs, and we can make those LEDs blink so we can actually do Morse code. So we can make it blink the name of the club in Morse code from a space if we really wanted to. So, Aww. Yeah. So. Oh, this is very cool. We love that. I, like, we, 
I don't think we've seen the three of us like fangirling effectively over a card before. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> no, it's it's very cool. Um, yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And so this went up on the thirteenth, right? Um, how how did that process go from your point of view? Did you hand it to Skycraft and sort of they took it from there? Were you able to follow it along the way? What what was it like? So we handed the payload card over to Skycraft in December. So me and Sam were both down in Canberra for that. And then we have followed it and there's been uh, software updates and de- still development on the software side of things has continued past the hardware. For the launch... Um, it was quite a different feeling. You see these videos of rocket launches as a regular occurrence, but to see a rocket and be going, hmm, my hardware's on that. Yeah, that must have been very cool. Rowan, Sam, are you able to tell us anything about the quality assurance process that you had to go through to, you know, get your card on the satellite? Yeah, yeah. So Skycraft provided a range of of, um, requirements that we had to meet in terms of materials, um, we couldn't just use things that are off the shelf in all cases. We had to specifically choose materials that were approved for space or adhesives that were approved for space. Um, we also had to um, go through a number of different test stages. One of those is a vibration test to make sure that nothing falls off in space and then damages other components. So, yeah, Skycraft have a whole process. They, they take their partners through with that, and we uh, got to be a part of that. And that's the hardware side. What about on the software side? Yeah, software side, we pretty much had free reign. Um, as, long as, we, <laughs> as long as we don't spam their, their internal network with data and we only give it stuff when asked, we were told we have a certain amount of data and you can do what you want with it in that period. So. Yeah, you don't want to DDoS the satellite. Yeah, it's, it's not our goal right at this stage, but it's a commercial <laughs> opportunity we will explore in the future. Yeah, I assume that if you brick that, it's going to be hard to do, do a reboot. Yeah, yeah, the reset button is a bit hard to reach, shall yeah. we say. Yeah, you know, fair enough. Well, now that it, now that it is up there, have, have you heard back from it? So we're waiting to hear back from Skycraft on that. So they need to bring all of their systems online for that. So um, they've got a lot to do and we just need to sit on the edge of our chair and be patient, not rush things because we'd really rather they didn't brick their system either. That Yeah, that would be ideal, I suppose. Do you have a timeline on that or is it just a bit of a wait and see at this point? At this stage, it's wait and see, but I guess people can follow the Smack, the Student Maker Club on Instagram or Facebook, and we'll post a selfie on there when it's when it's up there. So, what's your handle? How do we get in that? Yeah, Swimber Makers and Creators, I think, on Facebook. If you search that, you'll find the club. Um, yeah, if people want to join us for other projects in the future, please, please reach out because I think the student enthusiasm is what makes the club tick. So, yeah, yeah, you can literally have your name written in the stars totally in Morse code. By an LED. And there's definitely been more space projects to come. So, yeah. It's... And if oh, you... It's amazing. Yes. If you're an astronomer and you're planning to do a long exposure image of the sky, let us know the date and time. We'll see. And because well, I would love to be a pest. <gasps> Ooh. Yes. That's a great call out. Wait, so you want to get a selfie of the thing getting a selfie of it? Uh, I, I want yeah. to Morse code across the top of your image. Oh. I'm lost. Okay, so if an astron- any astronomers listening, um, how should they get in touch? If you search up the Swinburne Makers and Creators mm-hmm. on Facebook, send us a message. Uh, if possible, we would love to Morse code on top of your images. Oh, that would be very cool. Could you, could you throw in a, like, we love triple R? Anyway, it's fine. We, we, it's totally, fine. we totally can do that. We can make that happen. Yeah. Amazing. Just followed on Instagram. It's great to see you on the gram as well. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, this is this is really wonderful. Um, 
Could you tell us more about the club itself? Because it sounds like if you've got people who are currently, you know, working on satellites, the club's been going a long time. When when was it founded? Do you know anything about the origin? That's a great question, and I don't actually know the origin of the club. Uh, prior to uh, myself and Zach being heavily involved with it, there we, we had so the, the former president uh, is currently working at Skycraft, and the club was very active in, at that time. Um, so prior to that period, though, I'm unfamiliar with. Um, the origins of the club. I've taken it on and it's haven't investigated. For and it. I wonder, have things like the advent of 3D printing really changed like the scope of what the club's able to do? Do you get involved in that at all? Absolutely. Um, 3D printing is a very critical part of everything. So, for example, we've got an aluminium bracket which we use to attach the camera. The first one we made of that was 3D printed. It's quick and accessible. So you can print aluminium? We'd, we were printing plastic and then we were machining the aluminium one just to verify that everything fits. Before oh, we right, like a reference. Place. Yep. Oh, very cool. So we really are getting into the age of low-cost manufacturing, whether that be uh, 3D printing or circuit boards. See, we can send these circuit board designs to China. We can get, in a few weeks, for a few dollars, we can get some prototypes. The resourcing has changed so much since I was a computing student and I'm a little bit envious actually. Uh, But I do wonder, you know, are there students from other disciplines just like fighting to beg, borrow, steal your resources? You know, I imagine if you're an architecture (laughs) student these days, you don't have to make everything out of foam and cardboard and paper and what have you. You kind of want to get exposed to this. Is, Is there much, you know, lending, borrowing that goes around? 3D printers are very common. So uh, I don't hear too much (laughs) of that because I think they're stealing other people's 3D printers. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I think it's, it's changed. Hard, hard to go into a lab at Swimbin and not find a 3D printer in one oh. form or another. So yeah, they are, um, yeah, multiplying. But That's makers, makers and Creators is a broad remit. Um, what else is there? I, I know that, um, like, the first thing that I would think of is not we're sending things into space, but um, you're clearly doing that. <laughs> but what else is out there? So we started – so it's – like lots of social clubs, university social clubs, um, you know, things like pub nights, just those social type of gatherings, and that's what's led to this. Um, there's a few more projects in the works, but this has really been such a drain on resources that it's all consumed <laughs> everything for the last 12 months. So we hear you're not planning the uh, the Makers Association ball yet for Swinburne. It's just going to – we're going to space. That's cool enough for us. That's right. <laughs> Amazing. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, well, thank you very much um, for coming in and talking to us about all of the uh, the amazing stuff that you've been doing. And again, um, if you are an astronomer and you're listening and you would like to capture some of this groundbreaking work in your own pictures, um, please get in touch with, with Ron and with Sam. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So good to meet you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Triple R. And we are here now to talk about a study that Snapchat has apparently put together about the nicknames that people are using on their platform, and they have broken it down for us by region. So we have some very interesting insights into the kinds of nicknames that Australians are using on their platform. Well, I think it says a lot about who's on Snapchat, and tell me if you agree when you hear some of these names. Um, 
the the research was conducted by Lonergan on behalf of SNAP and Australia's most popular nicknames. Shall we go from the lowest to the most popular? We'll do number six. Yep. Yep, number six. Go, go. for it. Digger. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all right. I mean, Digger's going to be happy with that. Diggers will be happy with that. Yeah, Digger will be happy with that. Yeah. Is that like, do you think a, a kind of military reference or is it like a kind of... I think with the age of the average snapper, yeah, possibly, probably not. Pops, possibly not. Yeah, no, because no, yeah. my, my mind would have gone like an Anzac reference or something. Yeah. Just, so... just, a, just an Aussie mateship sort of reference. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that we're talking about active service here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with you this never, age range. You never know. You never know. You Maybe. Never know. All right, that was number six. Number five. Three, four, five. Oh, there's only five. Sorry, oh, my bad. Oh, sorry. Counting so that was number five. Uh, so five was digger. That was five. Yes. Yeah. Number four, cutie. Uh, uh, all right. Anyone who calls themselves I mean, is that cutie, a nickname or is that just anyway? Yeah. Mm. Uh, hi, my, my, my Was it? I'm the root of all this evil. Yeah, but you can call me Cookie. It's it's a similar deal. Like I just. I'm, I, I, Dan, I save it because it gets better. Oh god. Number okay. three. Yeah. Babe. Like the pig. You remind me of the babe. What, what babe? babe? The baby with power. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've I've got some serious misgivings about these people who are calling themselves cutie and babe. Well, that's okay, okay because number two will give you Lily, honey, honey. Oh, yeah. oh my god, is it? Can I ask? Does it drill down into whether these are? Words used in them, they must be used in broader kind of names. It's like honey, yes, honey right. child and babe magnet yes. or something yes. like that. Which yes. I mean, if you're calling yourself babe hot magnet, babe hot, 69, hot babe 69, of yes. course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm imagining that every one of these handles has the digit six and nine in there at some point. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And then can you guess what number one is? Do I want to? All right, uh, let's go. Come on. Uh, is it? No, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so we've had, what have we had? We've had digger, digger, cutie, cutie, babe, babe honey. honey. Um, sexy. Not Valiant effort. Yeah. Yeah. No? It's baby. 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 Like a literal human child. We are not particularly creative as a, as a country, are we? When it, it also comes does to make name? you wonder, if, does this, I mean, this makes me think this is a list that's skewing female. Possibly. 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 Yeah. Um, Just slightly more. I, I also wonder if it tells you a bit about what people use Snapchat for. I mean, these are kind of uh, <laughs> quite bloody... <laughs> Floaty names. Well, well, it's funny that Snap didn't go into that in their research. No, it's no. funny. Well, I suppose when it, when it first you know burst onto the scene, it was its big thing was send sex pics and they'll delete after fifteen seconds. Like yeah. that was the thing. So, like, I guess it's it, it it it's a rod for its own back. I suppose. I do uh, worry about the potential for military secrets for all the digger users. Mm, true, you know. but those we know those are coming out in you know real time uh, <laughs> role playing war games. Yeah, yeah. they're all <laughs> those forums. True. Absolutely, I, I I find it interesting that they've also done the um the the research into Australians putting a sort of a suffix at the end of the of the of their nickname with an e or an i or an o. What did they have to say about that? Well, they, the people people uh, have. Nicknames with Ali, Mickey, and Jacko are some of our favourites. Jacko, Jacko. Which I mean, when I hear Jacko, my first thought is Michael Jackson, and I don't think mm. that the, oh. yeah, it's I weird. Think of, um, oh, Mark the, Jacko the, Jackson. The yes. guy. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's a, that's also. I mean, maybe that's just indicative of of and the song that he put out. Like I'm a something. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, man, I can't remember what the word was, but it was something like yeah. That. I'm a, I'm irrelevant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like I was a, very young when I yeah. totally uh, groundbreaking research. Australians mm. end their names in O and E and like to shorten them. Yeah, look, I mean, this is stuff that we we definitely needed Snapchat to be telling us. Um, <laughs> I, I did like that they did broader research into nicknames in Australia in general, which just makes me think. I think there is a little bit of a US fascination with 
Aussies and nicknames and people do, you know, little surveys like what would your Aussie nickname be? And, you know, I think there's they think it's a bit charming. Mm. Sure. So I th- think that might be why they went into perhaps unnecessary detail. But yeah, like, you know, in a work context with someone from the United States, and uh, the first time I ever made the mistake of using the word fortnight in that context, I got told that it was quite charming and quaint because um, they just say every two weeks. Yes. So Do they, do they not use the word fortnight? No. It's very British. No. Is it? Yes, and it's a colonial why, hangover. And right, that's why okay. you end up with weirdness like bi-weekly and then everyone's like, is it every two weeks or is it twice a week? And right. like, there's a word for it, it's fortnight. It's called fortnight. <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. What is really interesting to me is um, the definition of a nickname because it doesn't really go into that. They just say that, it, like, what, nearly half of Aussies say that, like, people tend to know them by a nickname. So so if if, let's say, for example, your name is John and people call you Jack, is Jack your nickname or is Jack your name? I mean, it's a matter of debate, I suppose. I mean, yeah. There's there is always a pretty weird divide between what somebody's name on paper and what is like their name that they use versus mm. a nickname because of course your name on paper isn't necessarily the name that you would ever go by but I wouldn't call those nicknames necessarily either. No, and yeah, and I suppose they're not necessarily going to be going to that kind of detail and sociologically for Snapchat research, I suppose. Yeah, they did have some interesting breakdowns of different behaviours by different generations. Like, I don't oh, always love a generational go. breakdown. Absolutely. Like that's not always great. But <laughs> I'm gonna start. But start they, things here. Well, they, they said that millennials were the most likely to have successfully given themselves a nickname, and that is such a fraught concept in Australian Ooh. culture. To give yourself a nickname is not the done thing. But I wonder where this is blurring with that old concept of giving yourself an online anonymous handle, mm. because that was a very standard thing in first-wave internet culture. Don't use your real name. You, know, you want to be safe out there. And then later on, for other reasons, you, know, you don't want people to know that you're a woman or you know, other things online, mm. so it made sense to be anonymous Mm -hmm. but it also meant that people did pick that name and it wasn't a nickname it was your online name Mm. it was like what you use for your email and your sign-ups to whatever forums you're joining and to post anonymous comments under friends' blog things until they figure out who you are exactly and like we're we're largely talking about certainly in in my case where you know, a name that you chose when you were like 14 or 15 years old. And I'm, you know, very much now in my late 30s. And it's like, I'm, I, I, there are still instances where I use that name. And I'm like, if I'd, if I'd known, I probably wouldn't have chosen it. That's why I got rid of my um, at regurgitator Zapzo network email address. Because <laughs> regurgitator, you know, in my generation meant... Very clearly, you the loved band. this band. It was the band. It wasn't just often. not a great expression to I have out there. Enjoy vomiting. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Anyway, um, so this this successfully nicknaming yourself, you know, I think it sounds harsher than it is. If mm. it's just choosing your online name, that's perfectly understandable. You've got to choose something, and let's not have a million numbers at the end of it. But uh, they're saying that that demonstrated a change from their predecessors, Gen X uh, and baby boomers, who um, would not pick their own names and so would be more likely, I think, maybe to use real names mm. Okay, in their usernames. I don't I, – I, I really want to quibble with this. Yeah. Um, like the other, the other facet to this study, particularly when you break it down by generations, is the work that um, people like Gretchen McCullough, who wrote Because Internet, have done on this topic. I think that um, – and something that she articulated really well in that, in that book and in, in her research has been the way that – 
the internet has kind of warped the shape of generations where you have people who came online sort of very early um, who is not like entirely a cohort or whatever, Mm. like some Gen Xs and some older, um, but not the entire cohort, usually like people who are at university or fairly nerdy in some way. And then millennials. <laughs> sorry, the look that Vanessa is giving yeah. us. Just you say sorry. Uh, what do you mean, late you Gen X, early online no. parents, no. both in computing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why no not? factors. But, but um, the the point that McCullough makes is that um, you have you know this kind of blurring between this cohort of. Gen Xs and Millennials mostly, where it's they're not really one or the other. They are the internet generation. They're the ones who went online first and they've developed their own cultures, their own ways of speaking. And that people who were not in that part of those generations have their own generational boundaries like X and Y and Z and so on. But the internet generation is its own thing. And now you have sort of the post-internet generations, the people who are... are born into it, more or less. Well, yeah, born into it or the people who came online to find and talk to the people that they were already speaking to in real life rather than to the purpose of this this other internet generation which was to go online to meet people who were like you so it's about how you socialize and how you want to do that and the groups and the language that you use together i love that unpacking because where that hits the real world is when we had you know a, a suite of people coming out of universities into office jobs and you know, some management would say, oh, we'll give that technical, you know, slightly technical job to that young person mm. because they've grown up with the internet and they'll have good ideas about what to put on the corporate website or whatever it was, mm. you know. And you really had to unpack that assumption and go, well, no, no, these aren't, you know, necessarily nerds that we've hired here. These are people who've gone into law, for example, you know, just as a, as a wild example. Put out there. <laughs> these are accountants. These are people who've got different skills. You just can't presume because of their age that they have an interest and affinity, any extra knowledge than you have. You know, it was it was just such a lazy kind of you know generalization, which is still happening. You know, being you know the youngest person in my office, I'm often tech support. I'm like, guys, call tech support. <laughs> but I do, I do think though that that it does it has shifted now where um i've seen some discussion re- recently about this generation also being the sandwich generation like the tech support generation because you are in between um the group of people who didn't have computers and yes. also the people who have come into um tech and the internet and computing from a purely like sort of consumer driven standpoint yes, where it's not it's- so hard to do things yeah. By the time they came into it, they didn't have to do the figuring out stage. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of things have been abstracted. One of the very interesting things that you can see in the workplace at the moment um, is when people are joining the workplace, say, in the last five years or so, people um, just not having an intuitive understanding of, say, what a file system is or how to organize <laughs> folders into structures and things like that. Because... I laugh, but I've joined many a company that does not have any concept of document management. So. I mean, that's, a, that's entirely <laughs> separate to, like, corporate knowledge management, which is a fascinating rabbit hole. But, um, you know, when you, when you would use a computer back in my day, it used to be that um, you would have folders and files and you would know how to navigate those but um increasingly those are abstracted away from the user interface and it's all very search focused is it in the cloud or is it not in the cloud exactly it doesn't matter and so um (laughs) that's even worse wow and and so yeah and when you ask people to break down these analogies it's like um I don't think about it as like a series of hierarchies. It's like there's a big old basket full of all of my laundry and I just sort of say sock and the I sock. I expect it to be yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it's the same kind of thing where yes. yeah, it's kind of worn off at the other end. Like, But we've had this weird generational shift. I think that that, that feeds into this research. 
but um, yeah, no, it's um, something Look, that I don't know if Snapchat ever addressed. No, true. But uh, what, what, I, what I will say is um, some, the, apart from the, the top five, there are a few other names that I really need to call out here. <laughs> um, so we've had Baby Honey Cutie, Bear, which is, you know, Bear, Bear Cutie. Right. Yeah, Versatile yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, Shorty. Okay. Big, big, big shout out to Shorty. Yeah. Uh, Sweetie. Yeah. Everyone, everyone calls themselves sweet. But I, ma- I mentioned like sweetie underscore pie is probably one. Uh, sausage is um, sausage. Grinder or Snapchat? You know, yeah, like, this is just this it's is very true. interesting. We'll look, look, yeah. um, da- Darling sounds like someone who is speaking to their mum. <laughs> um, and then we've got the last two: sweet pea and wiggle bum. Wigglebum. Wigglebum. Now, How I can't... common could an expression like wigglebum be? I've never heard, before reading this report, I've never heard the, heard the term wigglebum, let alone the term used as we a need, name. We need some David Astle getting on this. We need to, we need to, <laughs> to <laughs> suss him. But suss not just, him oh, not right. just this, but this is someone's name. Someone Have you has, met anyone called Wigglebum? I've never, I've never met anyone called Wigglebum. I've never met anyone who calls themselves Wigglebum. But I've we never named the anyone Wiggles Wigglebum. Generations. This is the Wiggles generations. Well, I wonder if Wiggles is appended to a million things. Well, hmm. possibly, but unless maybe someone's you know into the Wiggles in an interesting way. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I All think right. possibly we leave this leave this one here. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. You're listening to Bite in Toronto Three Triple R with Vanessa Lilly and Wigglebum. <laughs> <laughs> It's like if I'm going to call anyone Wigglebum, I'm going to have to call myself because otherwise that would be. Well, it only works because you rode to studio tonight and you're wearing a very specific outfit, so we'll allow it. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a, so the inclu- other weird news instead of my cycling attire, <laughs> Vanessa. Oh, uh, look, um, there's anyone with a mobile phone has probably wondered what happens if you sort of hit the emergency call thing when you're out of service or what have you, mm-hmm. and it is a feature that's you know live within the the Apple, you know, operating system and the Android operating system. And um, often when they change things about this feature, something goes wrong and emergency services will get a lot of calls about it when it goes particularly wrong because they'll get false 911 calls in the States, for example. Um, In the UK, uh, the National Police Chiefs Council told the BBC this week that um, they were receiving record high in their in their country. It's nine 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 calls, um, and we know that in Australia our our emergency services is triple zero. Um, but but they were sort of saying, look, it's actually quite hard to make this service work well automatically on your phone. So the the uh, Australia's outdoor safety and communication brand GME have stressed that there's a new iPhone feature that should not replace. Um, other life-saving devices. So it was interesting to see they've taken this this news as like a product opportunity. Oh my god! To wow. go to go. Oh, you know how you know emergency SOS can be a bit unreliable on iPhones and Androids. Um, we're selling a different product that would <laughs> that would make oh, you get a cash problem. in on your emergency. Oh. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So this was the weird news of the week where you go, okay, that's a kind of odd take on. Um, on a problem, but um, it's, it's a very creative take. True, and and I mean, not not that I've kind of looked into it too deeply, but how good? Oh, I suppose how 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 prudent is it to be changing an emergency procedure when there is already a procedure that everyone knows? I don't think they're trying to change it. They're, they're, it you know, the phones have been trying to link into 
any country service that they yeah. have, and obviously they've got to, you know, nationalise that. For of course. Yeah, so, so it's not like we're, we're, we're going to change the triple O to one one three now just no, because no, we're just the hell of it. Absolutely no. not. But it, it's um you know I I mean from the phone manufacturer's point of view um it's supposed to make it easier for emergency services to be automatically summoned if you are in an accident or something and you're not able to do that but it does mean that um then if you're at a music festival or on a roller coaster it it gets set off yeah so they've tried to automate some of this so it's not just when you're out of service you have the option to hit emergency they've started to put in sensor detection of you know. Do we think you've been in a crash type situation? Ah, yeah. which, you know, which so is there's that sort of thing going. Why on. you might find, you know, back in like if you're walking out of a mosh pit, you pick up your phone and it's it's ready to call emergency services, and you're like, oh, well, I'm glad that didn't happen. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but now it is apparently sometimes doing that automatically. Anyway, just something to keep an eye on. They'll be improving it very urgently, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a you know one of those real issues where you super have to worry about it. I guess a false call is much better than no call. This is true. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Tiniest, last little bit of bite into it on Triple R with Dan, Lily, and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us this evening or tuning in if you're about to try and catch the International Pop Underground. We wanted to call out one event that's coming up soon. Uh, normally, we do very, very tech focused events, and some of them can be super specific to people. And uh, and we have heard some feedback that people would sometimes like a really general event, and we found one for you. <laughs> Look, Open House Melbourne is coming up now. You might think, what is the connection to technology? Now, let me tell you. <laughs> Yes, Never Vanessa. has an organisation been uh, so welcoming to the curiosity of our community when we want to go and tour things like electrical substations. So we <laughs> love Open House Melbourne. Now, while there may not be an electrical substation in the lineup this year, we have found Mount Burnett Observatory. So, you know, all you kind of space nerds, hopefully big fans tonight. Check out some Morse code as it flies over. Yeah, love it. it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yarra Tram's new Preston Tram Depot. Oh, love that. Gunzels Unite. I'm all across that. Uh-huh. Gunzels, Fantastic. is that what we called? That's what yeah, we're called. Yeah, transport notes, yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm just going to include myself in that casually, but, you know, please don't, yeah. don't like, Especially knowledge police yes. me. <laughs> um, and Beta by Southbank. So I don't know if you know that. I love that this building's called Beta, but it's, it's a building that's got lots of experimental sort of lighting displays and sensor technologies and what have you in South Bank. And, uh, you know, it's it's a bit like capitalist and consumery and what have you. Yes, they're trying to sell some things and what have you. South Bank. But it's also like, yeah, exactly. But it's also super cool. Like, you know, they've got really amazing light art and, you know, I'm sure there's lasers mm. somewhere there. And being beta, they'll pull it down in six months and put <laughs> the room No, we have to encourage these things where they pop up and just ask questions about why is it so and are we interested? Absolutely. Um, so that is coming up in July. It's happening on the 29th and 30th of July. But you have to be organised. If you're going to hit up Open House, you've got to corral the friends, you've got to get your tickets. The first release tickets are coming out on the 6th of July, so we're just getting you prepared. They're coming out noon. When they put a time on the release date, you know it's sensitive. That's when you know. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.